This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. Our special focus this week, indigenous issues in Latin America. Former General Otto Perez Molina is about to be inaugurated as Guatemala's new president this weekend. How will Guatemala's Maya react as a community targeted for genocide during the country's civil war? And with the success of indigenous politicians in South America, what is the view looking forward towards equality? But first, Lydia Bayoud joins us for our roundup of news from around Latin America. Iranian President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad kicked off a tour of Latin America this week by visiting Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, his strongest ally in the region. Ahmadinejad attended Nicaraguan President Daniel Ortega's swearing-in ceremony and met with leaders in Cuba and Ecuador. Conservative American groups have been vocal in expressing their concern and anger at Ahmadinejad's visit to Latin America. Some claim Iran may be supporting criminal groups there, but experts like Michael Shifter, president of D.C. think tank The Inter-American Dialogue, caution that many of these allegations remain unsubstantiated. There, there still is a lack of very uh, clear uh, information about the extent of what Iran is up to in the region and uh, how serious it is. What's more, he thinks Iran's influence is likely to be slight at best. The fact that uh, uh, Ahmadinejad's itinerary consisted of uh, the four countries that it did, I think just makes the point more clearly that uh, he's not widely accepted among most Latin American governments. Hossein Oskari, an Iran expert and international affairs professor at George Washington University, says Ahmadinejad's visit to the region is all just part of a political game, but one without much effect. Iran has got the little political motive to tweak the United States and maybe to try to get around sanctions. Iran would have much more effect if its relation with all of Latin American countries were in fact as good as they are with Venezuela. Both Ascari and Shifter see the absence of Brazil, the region's economic powerhouse from the tour, as indicative that Iran may be merely puffing up its international political clout. The U.S. State Department ordered Venezuela's Consul General in Miami, Livia Acosta Noguera, to leave the United States last weekend. Acosta's expulsion may be due to remarks attributed to her about a possible cyber attack with Iran and Cuba, on U.S. nuclear facilities while she was stationed as a diplomat in Mexico. The comments were aired in a documentary on Univision in December and prompted an FBI investigation. To date, the allegations of possible Venezuelan support for a cyber attack have not been substantiated. Venezuelan President Chavez said the U.S.'s declaration of Acosta as a persona non grata was, and these are Chavez's words, another demonstration of the ridiculous empire's arrogance. Venezuela's foreign ministry, however, has yet to make a formal response. Ecuador and Venezuela have taken steps to silence critics of their government's violations of free speech by coming after a watchdog agency with the Organization of American States, the OAS. They're seeking to muzzle the Office of the Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Expression and the woman who heads it, Colombian lawyer Catalina Botero Marino. A work group created by the presidents of Ecuador and Venezuela seeks to limit Botero's mandate, strip her office of outside funding, and prevent it from publishing annual reports on their countries or even press releases. 
Mexican President Felipe Calderón started a crackdown on drug traffickers five years ago. Officials say the initiative has been successful. The Mexican Secretary of Public Security, Genaro García Luna, visited Washington, D.C. this week to talk about his new book on changes in public security in fighting the drug cartels. Nadia Batson has a look. Reforming police forces, building a new intelligence exchange model and international cooperation, and restructuring the country's prison system have become an integral part of Mexico's new security system. Garcia says a careful selection of police officers ensures proper candidates are appointed to law enforcement positions. But he notices that there is something else that is more important. What's most important is that our forces are active and being held accountable. The publication of this book coincided with the disclosure of the official data revealing the number of deaths connected with drug trafficking. 13,000 people became victims of organized crime between January and September last year. It means nearly 48,000 people have been killed since 2006. In spite of this, Garcia says the advantages of Mexico's new security model are obvious, and it is working. Nancy Betson, Latin Pulse. Less than halfway into January already brings the first killing of a Mexican journalist this year, Raul Garza Quirino. Quirino was chased in his car by armed men before being shot and killed in the center of Cadereta, a town near Monterrey. A spokesman for investigators says the motives behind Quirino's death are unclear, but that he may have been attacked by narco-traffickers for his new car or because he was mistaken for a rival gang member. Mexico is considered one of the most dangerous countries in Latin America and also ranks in the world's top 10 most dangerous countries for journalists. The Organization of Journalists of the State of Nuevo León has called for a thorough investigation by authorities into his death. For Latin Pulse, I'm Lydia Bayoud. Thanks, Lydia. And now our first in-depth interview, Kelsey Alford-Jones of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission, a nonprofit group, gives us her analysis of how making former general Otto Perez Molina president will affect Mayan groups. Indigenous communities in Guatemala have been marginalized and forgotten and been victimized over the last 500 years. And that's really um, the way that many indigenous peoples see their history is not that it started um, or not, not that the issues that they're dealing with started with the internal conflict, but rather are ongoing cycles of violence and genocide that have really started since the invasion of the Spanish. And those communities who suffered so much during the internal conflict, suffered massacres, suffered forced disappearance, suffered forced recruitment into the army, um, suffered the loss of their land, the loss of their, their heritage, um, and the ability to continue as a community and as a culture to speak their indigenous language and, and carry out their, their cultural traditions, are now seeing the military coming back into their communities. They're now seeing their land once again being taken away out from under their feet by private corporations who come in with their private security and with the full backing of the Guatemalan police and military are violently evicting indigenous communities. Could you give us some examples of what's happening on the ground with these evictions of indigenous communities? Of course, 2011 saw a series of violent evictions of indigenous communities. One of the biggest um, occurred in March of 2011, and this was in the Polochic Valley in the department of Alta Verapaz, um, which is in kind of north-central Guatemala. And in the Polochic Valley, 
a, a wealthy uh, landowning family um, decided to open a sugar plantation and got a big loan from the International Development, the um, IDB, the Inter-American Development Bank, to carry out um, a sugarcane plantation project and sugar refinery for biofuel production. That project did not uh, was not successful. They did not cultivate a single um, bit of sugarcane, and they went broke. And indigenous communities moved back onto the land. These are subsistence-based, you know, farming communities, and. This, um, just to give some context, is in the municipality of Pansos, um, which, in again, in uh, during the internal conflict, was the victim of a, an atrocious massacre. And so, the same families who were lived through that massacre are are now um, seeing their land being taken over by uh, these kind of large development projects for biofuel production. And when the families moved back onto the land, seeing that it was laying fallow and that the company had not been successful. Um, they began to plant their, their corn and their beans and their subsistence crops. When the company managed to kind of reorganize their loan and get funding again, they got support from the Guatemalan government and a judicial order to evict all of the families. And so in March, over a series of days, the sugarcane company, which is called Chabilutzach, with um, the Guatemalan police, hundreds of members of the Guatemalan police and the military, came in and violently evicted the communities. And much like the Scorched Earth campaign during the 1980s, um, not only were the families evicted, but everything that they owned was burned. Their homes, which are, are kind of huts made with uh, sticks and with thatched roofs, were burned to the ground. What wasn't burned was often stolen by the police or the military or the private security. And not only were there acts of violence committed against the community, but then all of their their crops, which is the 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 you know their basic necessity, were also burned to the ground. And so, over the course of three or four days, over seven hundred families lost all of their belongings. Which you know, families don't have much in these communities. Um, all of their belongings, their homes, and all of their food. And this again was with the full backing of the Guatemalan government. And this is a, a pattern of forced evictions that the Guatemalan government has carried out. And there's another case. Um, up in northern Guatemala, a community that lives on the border of Mexico, in which they were evicted, and just like during the internal conflict, were forced to flee across the border into southern Mexico. And so these communities that have been evicted, who in many cases have historic uh, right to the land as indigenous communities, and under ILO Convention 169, um, have a right to be consulted and have a right to to their historic lands as indigenous communities um, are being are being pushed off their land. They have, in many cases, no legal title to that land, partly due to the forced displacement during the internal conflict, and in part due to um, the corruption within the Guatemalan government and the lack of a good, um, trustworthy land registry. And so it's easy for corporations to come in and either through intimidation or through corruption, gain a legal access or legal legal title to these lands. That that international um, legal statute that you just quoted from—that's a UN um, statute. Um, international Labor Organization Convention One Six Nine. And I'm glad that you that you mentioned the larger 500-year context to this question of indigenous rights in in Guatemala because. Um, 
that brings up everything to the present. This continues to be a misunderstanding between cultures about the use of land. Exactly. And it's a, a really, um, it's difficult to understand, I think, for many who have grown up in a Western industrialized country in which progress and technology is what we see as a good thing and as, prog- you know, kind of improvement to our daily lives. Whereas in indigenous communities, there is a sense that the new things that are coming into communities are incredibly destructive. And part of the reason why in Guatemala, indigenous communities, of which there are about 22 different languages and cultures, have managed to maintain their culture and their language is from rejecting those kinds of external um, projects and those external kind of development initiatives. And that is true today. When you talk with people who are in indigenous communities, they really are just want to be able to live in peace, farm their land, and and raise their family and provide for their children. And the the push um, on behalf of both the international community, the business community in Guatemala, international financial institutions for the quote unquote development of Guatemalan lands for um, export industry projects for agricultural kind of large scale banana coffee cultivation for biofuel production like African palm and sugarcane, and for the booming extractive industry um, projects in Guatemala, such as gold mines, nickel mines, petroleum extraction, those are all projects that have uh, basically taken away land from indigenous communities, have turned subsistence um, agriculture into um, open mine gold pits, for example and have been disastrous for the social fabric of indigenous communities and have actually led to a lot of, of human rights violations. I think we need a little bit more context here for a U.S.-based audience where indigenous communities are minimized, are outside of the mainstream view, and are, well, statistically less than or about 1% or less than 1% of the population. Can you give us some context about the difference there in the indigenous situation in Guatemala? Guatemala, unlike the U.S., as you mentioned, has a majority indigenous population. And perhaps one could say 55 to 60% of Guatemalans are indigenous, and most of those are indigenous Mayan. Um, There are two other indigenous, um, one other indigenous community in Guatemala, and then the Afro-Guatemalan community. The Garifuna community. Exactly. And they, they, are, they have a very strong identity. And they, as I mentioned, they speak um, an indigenous language. Um, there are 22 different languages spoken. They have a, their own system of government, um, their own um, system of um, kind of internal hierarchy. And unlike the U.S., they despite hundreds of years of, of repression and occupation, have been able to maintain these traditions. And in the U.S., you know, there are very small communities living on in, um, Indian reservations. Guatemala does not have Indian reservations, and the indigenous community primarily lives in um, the western highlands um, and the northern regions of Guatemala, and they continue to be primarily... Um, subsistence-based agricultural communities. Um, But throughout their history, despite being the majority of the population, they have always had 
you know, very little access to positions of power. Um, they have been completely marginalized within the political system of Guatemala, within the economic system. They have a very small percentage of the national wealth. They own a very small percentage of the national territory. And this is a, a huge problem for Guatemala and one that systemically they have not been able to deal with. And there is very little political will to to change that because it, it does benefit those who are in power. They have a cheap labor source and they don't have um, a lot of opposition when carrying out policies that are detrimental to the indigenous population. And briefly, because of time, what are their prospects in the new administration or under the new administration? Well, uh, President Otto Perez Molina has recently declared that one of his big priorities is going to be the public-private partnership of large-scale development projects. And one of these is something called the um, Technological Corridor, which is going to be hundreds of kilometers long, um, which will, if they get the funding and can plan it out, will be stretched from coast to coast across Guatemala. Basically, the idea being that it's like a dry canal, much like the, the Panama Canal. Um, there's also a similar development zone across the northern part of Guatemala. And both of these, you know, imply huge highway projects. Um, it's basically a way for companies to move goods quickly throughout the country. And when accumulating these huge pieces of land, indigenous communities, once again, um, are not consulted. They're kicked off their land. They have nowhere to go and often end up working for um below minimum wage for the very companies that have displaced them. And so in terms of issues of development, of extractive industry projects, of um, biofuel production, all of the kind of large-scale economic development projects that are so harmful to indigenous peoples will be, uh, I think, a, a real priority for the Otto Perez Molina administration. And, and we'll see how that plays out. But the consultation with indigenous communities and the respect for the rights of those communities are not a priority for his administration. And uh, at GHRC, we're pushing the U.S. government to in turn push the Guatemalan government to, tr to try and prioritize some of those issues. But it will be a, a very difficult uh, battle. Well, we'll have to see how that battle turns out. Thank you, Kelsey Alford-Jones of the Guatemala Human Rights Commission today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse, and now our interview with anthropologist and political scientist Rob Albro. Albro teaches at American University, and he specializes in the politics of indigenous communities, especially politics in Bolivia. Let me ask a top-down question, if I may. With the election of the current president, Evo Morales, in Bolivia, and after seeing Alejandro Toledo's presidency in Peru, two men from indigenous communities, haven't issues of indigenous representation in politics been addressed in Latin America? Um, so 
the question is uh, complex because it, it really varies across the region tremendously. Um, I would emphasize the differences between the Toledo presidency in Peru and, and the Morales presidency in Bolivia. Toledo was not in a position to do a whole lot, and I don't think he was able to get a whole lot done. Um, and there wasn't the sense of historical sort of break with the past or potential transformative change that accompanied the you know, extreme optimism of the Morales presidency. Toledo, too, has a different relationship to the indigenous currents in Peru than does Evo Morales. Um, much more indirect, you know, World Bank, um, very different profile. Yeah, you know, Toledo so, being an economist. Toledo, right. And so his nickname, you know, the Cholo from Harvard, suggests that um, ambivalence about his ethnic status. Whereas uh, Morales is from an Aymara rural community, um, his language skills are, are not great, but he's very conversant with the uh, indigenous currents in the country and comes up from, from a, a grassroots movement as a leader of the coca growers in the, in the Chapare in Bolivia. And he became the linchpin for kind of elevating um, indigenous uh, policy platforms into kind of a national space, which really hasn't happened in Peru. So let's talk about the Bolivian context then, um, because many people may know a bit about Toledo. Um, the U.S. context for Morales and his administration tend to be colored by what goes on in Venezuela, uh, in Venezuelan politics and U.S.-Venezuelan politics. But I, I'd like to approach this more from, from that break that you talked about, this break with the past, where in, an indigenous movement now comes in to a presidency. So can you, can you inform sure. us a little bit more from that end? Right. Just briefly and parenthetically, the, the U.S. reading of the Morales administration, in my mind, has always been um, unfortunate, um, kind of grouping Morales together with Chavez and Chavismo in Venezuela is a mistake. Uh, they're allies, um, but Morales really is responding and is really the product of and represents very specific kinds of domestic questions associated very much with Bolivia um, that really can't be compared to Venezuela. And the indigenous questions are in the forefront of that. So Morales had already enjoyed a career as a, a prominent leader of the coca grower movement in a part of the country that was subject to, you know, DEA-related, uh, 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 you know, drug war-type interventions by the Bolivian government over many years since the early 1980s. And, and that would be the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. Drug Enforcement Administration. So, you know, what had happened in Bolivia was that the coca growers were that, you know, kind of vanguard of response to what was understood to be a, a violation of, of Bolivian sovereignty by, by U.S. government forces and so forth and so on, which went on for several decades. His attitude to the United States has to be understood as fundamentally shaped by those experiences as a coca grower leader. While in the presidency, though, you know, he's been um, different because he's been responding mostly to um, a domestic set of requirements upon, you know, political requirements upon his presidency and has not really been that concerned with, you know, relationships with the United States. Um, what the Morales election, what his election in 2005 and then his coming to office in 2006 signified was really the first time 
ever in at the in the hemisphere where um, a, a clearly indigenous person has been elevated to the top political office in the land. You know, Bolivia is a predominantly indigenous country. In, in, you know, to be indigenous in Bolivia is not just one monolithic thing. There's lots of different ways one can understand that. But it's, you know, 60, 70 percent of the population. Um, in Bolivia's indigenous peoples had been fundamentally um, marginalized from the national political process until very recently, beginning in the late mid to late 1990s, this began to change in certain ways, which the Morales administration is in many ways the result of. Have those issues that brought him to power, has he addressed those issues? Does he not still have to cope with that structure of protest in his country? Well, that's a great question because Bolivia has been a country of fairly constant protest now for some time. We saw uh, tremendous sort of dynamism in grassroots protest efforts through those years that I previously noted, 2000-2005. But prior to that, this had been a, a fairly steady fact on the national political scene going back to at least the 1952 revolution. The indigenous movements in Bolivia are not unitary. So this means that there are indigenous positions on many different sides of critical national issues, such as uh, what to do with um, or relationship to transnational corporate interests, what to do with non-renewable resources, you know, lithium, uh, gas, or petroleum, and so on. So you have indigenous voices, plural voices, kind of all around that issue. What Morales has been able to do was to move effectively on the basis of the coalition that brought him to power to put a quite historically transformative constitution in place that was put into force in 2009, not without controversy and not without a lot of politics behind it, some of which doesn't reflect well on the on, on the MAS party, the Movement Toward Socialism party, that is the Morales administration's uh, party. But it got done, and that was a very transformative and, and unique constitution, I think, at the level of the hemisphere, going much farther than any had previously to enshrine in the 411 articles of the constitution, not a short document, very particular kinds of autonomies for indigenous communities. I mean, I would say it was, it's a quite radical um, revolutionary document, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, I simply mean really transformative to move to the next phase of things in Bolivia's post-colonial history, really putting some oomph, some political and governmental oomph behind kind of indigenous enfranchisement. Um, indigenous people had become legal citizens in 1952, but this was really clearly a very second-class citizenship. So it was a citizenship really in, in, in the sense of the legal technical term until fairly recently, 2009. The administration has appropriated the framework of, of transnational indigenous advocacy, which has been very important at the level of the hemisphere and globally, as part of its own foreign policy as a national government. And then finally, it's the diversity of indigenous movements in the country. And it's very hard, and the Morales administration has found it hard, and I think any administration would find it hard, to maintain effective relationships with all these groups simultaneously. So there's always the possibility of friction, the inevitability of compromise, the, the difficulties of negotiating from the position of government as a representative of social movements, 
And keeping those balls all up in the air at once is extremely difficult. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult challenge of governance. And they've been okay, but I would say that you cannot be totally successful there. We'll look forward to seeing if um, the Morales administration can meet that challenge, but that's all the time we have at this point today. Rob Albro, an anthropologist dealing with public policy issues at American University, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thank you. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Lydia Bayoud and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.